Hey everyone, welcome to Punkcast. My name is William Maxwell. I'm a student of Web3 and the owner of Punk9527. CryptoPunks are 10,000 uniquely generated characters stored permanently on the Ethereum blockchain. No punk is the same. This is a show dedicated to celebrating the punks behind the punk. My hope for this podcast is that we capture the essence of the punk culture, elevate the brand and the individual behind the punk. One last thing, projects discussed on the show is not financial advice. Crypto and NFTs are a volatile and risky asset class. Please always do your own research. Other than that, let's go. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Punkcast. Today we've got a really unique punk with a diverse set of skills. Punk 4706 is a four addy with gray forward cap, chin strap, and earring and eye mask. In real life, he's an independent artist that works on animation movies, AI, and gen AI art. And he's also deeply technical being an OG Solidity developer. He's the creator of the well-known and well-used V1 CryptoPunk rapper. So we've got a lot to unpack in this episode. Please welcome the one and only FrankNFT.eth to the show. Frank, welcome. How are you? Hi, all. Very happy to be here with you, uh, Maxwell. Thank you. Likewise, uh, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while because as I'm sort of digging back into... The history of punks, obviously V1s play a role, but obviously your name comes up quite often in that same vein. So I've been looking forward to uh, learning a little bit more about you and your story and I guess how all of that sort of progress involved and I guess your current views on CryptoPunks. But maybe we could just start with a simple question around your background and, you know, what you sort of studied and how you found your way into developing an art and eventually into sort of Web3 and NFTs. Yeah, as you can see, that starts a while back. I'm a little bit older than the average puck. And I'm actually an aircraft engineer. So yeah, that's also a, a weird twist, maybe. I used to work for the Air Force as an aircraft engineer. At a, at a certain point in time, I decided to, to go into IT. And that was at that moment basically not the best choice because that the Air Force wasn't ready for that. Because, yeah. They were just not ready to have their own IT people and so on. And so I and many others that actually did the conversion, we left. And so I started as an independent uh, developer, uh, doing all kinds of consultancy jobs, uh, worked like 10 years for, for a large bank, and then started at the company where I'm still, uh, which is... Uh, basically the largest IT integrator in, in Belgium, like 8,000 people, something like that. And in the meantime, I have started here also Hyperlabs, which is uh, the Web3 company under the wings of that IT integrator. And we're three people of those 8,000. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Such a fascinating background and a very interesting one indeed. So just going back to your early days, like how did you get yourself into aircraft engineering and, and ultimately the Air Force, was that something that you always wanted to do or was there a certain, a certain path that you were sort of pushed into? No, I wasn't pushed into it, but it's, yeah, those, those were the times when the first, the first Top Gun film came out. And at that moment, there also, there was not much employment in Belgium. And so the combination of the two actually gave me the inspiration to go to the Air Force. So I studied electronics. The Air Force uh, wasn't really interested in electronics people. And so they offered me to, uh, let's call it rebrand, <laughs> to aircraft engineer. So I, I started there also with studying in the Air Force and then became an aircraft engineer. And yeah, I did that for about 10 years, I think, before I then uh, did my transformation to IT guy. Oh, amazing. 
and as a Air Force engineer, did that require any foreign deployment or anything like that? Or was it always local in, in Belgium? I did two deployments. I did two of uh, deployments to war zones oh, in, wow. in the year 2000. So you can calculate out which wars that were. But, uh... Yeah, yeah, crazy. So that must have been an interesting sort of journey then. How did you transition into technology space? Because I'm presuming like, you know, mechanical engineering would be relatively different for sort of technology and developing. How did you sort of make that jump? And Before I did the aircraft engineering, I was doing electronics. And yeah, the electronics, of course, they, they come a lot uh, closer to the IT part. And it, it was really, uh, for me, it was a relatively logical move to get out of the, the hardware and uh, the aircrafts and to go more into software. Also, if you look at a modern aircraft, it's all about software. It's not really about the hardware anymore. Got it. And I guess, presumably, you, you must be just naturally gifted with math. Yeah. Yeah, you can say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very, very bad in language. Uh, if you make me write stuff, you will always find errors. We have GPT chat now to help me. But if you put me in math, I, I can solve. Maybe just a side question as well. I think I'm a big Top Gun fan as well. But are, are you still a fan of his latest Top Gun movie as well? But I did see it. It's definitely not as good as the first one. And yeah, if you have been like me for so many years in aircrafts, you see some errors that you say, yeah, but that's not how we do things. Uh, so that, <laughs> that spoils you the movie a little bit because I, had, I didn't have that, of course, with the first movie. Probably in the first movie, these faults were also there. But I didn't have the experience at that moment to actually say, oh, we don't do that that, that, that way. But it's still a good movie. I don't yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. It just felt like it was a new version of the old version, like they basically overlaid the plot, a lot of the same scenes over it, but yeah, still a, still a Top Gun fan. Cool. And then to, to talk to me a little bit more around your transition from technology then and, you know, coding, et cetera, for the company that you're working with now into your interest into crypto and Web3, like how did those worlds collide? Well, I I was always interested in in crypto long before NFTs. I was I was mining Bitcoin on my desktop. I didn't have a laptop at that time, uh, but mining Bitcoin at your desktop that is like ages ago. But it was it was not even to make profit. It was really so. How does this blockchain work, and what can we do with it, and uh, what's the value in it? And for, for for those things, and yeah, when mining then uh, went to dedicated hardware, I, I also I stopped mining because I didn't have uh, that interest to invest in all that hardware and so on. But I stayed in in crypto. Yeah, of course that was interesting because I already had some coins uh, from those days. Yeah, I could trade them on exchanges and so on. And and it's it's basically only about three years ago. So I, I was not an original claimer of of things because yeah, that is like six seven years ago now. It's only like three years ago that I stumbled into NFTs because yeah, I am a, an amateur artist. I'm not a professional artist, but I'm an amateur artist. And I read this article about NFTs. Um, this article, it, it spoke about three platforms. So it was Foundation, Known Origin, and Super Air. And at, the, at that moment, all three platforms required an invitation to be able to get in. And I had something, the amateur artist in me, he, he said something like, yeah, this you have to do. This is like super cool. So I, I went to go lick ass uh, for about two weeks, I think, on the Discord of uh, Foundation to actually get an invitation because that was the most uh, that was the, <laughs> the most challenging uh, 
endeavor in in crypto ever is get an invitation for one of these these platforms and i got the invitation uh from carol and i yeah of course i had two weeks to prepare my work so i had a work ready at the moment i got my invitation i uploaded and the next morning when i woke up it sold it actually sold um I found out later that it was pure luck because it was it was just a YouTuber who was scrolling to the feed of Foundation, making his, his next movie and say, oh, this one is cool. I'm going to buy this one. Oh, this one is cool. I'm going to buy this one. And yeah, it, it dropped on mine also. And same thing. Oh, this is cool. Oh, it's a new guy. I'm going to buy it. And it was gone. Everybody on the, on the Foundation Discord was like, whoa, who is this guy? He just got in here and he already sold his first work because it could yeah, it could take weeks or months before you actually would sell something normally. And I, I did made some other works, and and they also sold. So, so that worked relatively well. If you were to describe the type of work that you produce, because I'm having a look at your foundation now, uh, how would you describe your, the type of work that you produce? Pretty cool. It's sort of like motion. Yeah, it's about motion. I also do some stuff on Tezos. There, I do the same stuff, but I do it uh, static. There are just images, but on the foundation, I'm, I only did videos. And it's AI art, uh, but it's not the AI art that most people know. And it's, that, it's also not the, the mid-journey DALI AI art that, that people know now. It is, it is a process that is called neural style transfer. So basically what I do is I, I take an AI and I train the AI on a certain image. And you probably guessed that the, the one that I really love is the is a stained glass. It's basically it's a stained glass from a church from a Madonna, and that AI is trained on that. And then I can actually give that AI an image. I don't describe it like you do in uh, in Midjourney, but I give him an image, and he will try to repaint that image in the style where I trained him on. Yeah, so if if you look at the work uh, Sensual, that is this Irish NFT girl actually that modeled for it, and she is now yeah repainted as a as a stained glass of a Madonna. Yeah, it's nice. I like it. I'm just having a look at that one now, and I had the other one I think of Four Seasons. Uh, it's quite nice as well. Four Seasons. That was my first one. That's the one that sold so fast. The oh, nice. So you did you sell an NFT before you actually bought one? So you were more of a on the creative side than. The- Yes, yes, actually I did. Oh, nice. Okay, so that was your entry into NFTs, more through the creative side. So linking up with foundation platforms. Were you experimenting with anything else at that time? No, no, I was I was really into the art part for, for the NFTs at that moment. But at a certain moment, one of the, the moderators, uh, and yeah, we're in the period of the board apes and, and so on uh, when they came out, uh, one of the moderators uh, of Foundation said, I want to do a project. So I'm, I'm looking for a few volunteers to, to make a team. And, uh, and yeah, I called him up and I said, okay, I'm in. Uh, what do you need me to do? And he said, yeah, I need somebody to make the contract. I said, yeah, I'm a professional programmer. I haven't done Solidity before, but I'm a professional programmer. I can, I can learn this. And so I joined the team. Uh, yeah, he, that was FCC. Probably everybody knows FCC also. Uh, so he made the websites and, and all of other stuff. And then there was Story, which is a, a woman from New Zealand who was the artist. And together we made uh, We Are Dorkies. And We Are Dorkies is the, the very first hand-drawn, on-paper PFP project. And I have I've pictures of Tori sitting in, in New Zealand uh, in her living room with like 300 
pieces of papers around her with every trait uh, hand-drawn uh, on it. Because she, she hand-drawn them each with, with pen and paper and colored them in with color pencils and they would get scanned. And yeah, in, the, in that period also, we didn't have any any frameworks or, or anything to actually make it a project. So I, I wrote software in Python to actually do the layering and to do the assembly of all the images. And uh, we launched that in September 21. Oh, nice. You were the developer on the, this project called We Are Dorkies. Yes, that was my very, very first contract. And if I look now at it, I think it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> but basically, yeah. And I did what most people did. I looked at the board Ape uh, contract. I looked at the Cool Cats contract, and I, I, I looked what can I use? How can I? How can I make what what we wanted to make? Because we had an we had an interesting uh, mechanism already in that day, uh, where we said, yeah, but yeah, we're going to launch the project. You can mint, and yeah, it will not be revealed at the moment when we reveal. You will have twenty four hours. And if in that 24 hours you burn your token, you will get actually 80% of your mint price back. So we gave you a sort of buy guarantee. Nobody ever did that again, I think. Maybe a few projects did, but I haven't come along many of them. So you had 24 hours if you would burn. In those 24 hours, you would get 80% of your mint money back. Oh, nice. That's interesting. So how does this work? So they were hand-drawn and... yes. But I, I sort of see 4,700 unique Dorkies exist. Yeah. How did you yes. think about uh, rarity and variations of that? If she, You said that she only drew 300? Yeah, the traits. Eh? Ah, 300. Ah, got it, got it, got it. They're only like 300 traits, something. Yeah. yeah. They're built like 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 the Born Apes, like like the punks. It's, it's the same principle. So she drew glasses, eyes, noses, ears, the faces and so on and so on. And the, the software I wrote in, in Python combined it. Now you can just download something like that. But in, in those days, those, those frameworks, they, were, they, were, they didn't exist yet. That's amazing. So you're an artist, a creative, and you're also a developer on the back end as well. I don't think I've met anybody with that type of skill set. It's pretty awesome. So then talk to me about then on the collecting side, what was your first NFT in the space? Uh, that was a one-of-one. One. Uh, that was definitely a one-of-one. One. Uh, if you look in my wallet, and I have to look myself, uh, it can be that it moved to my vault. Uh, I have to look where it is. <laughs> uh, uh, here it is. It's Morden Eyes by Jigrock. Okay, got it. A variable piece. Uh, nice. And uh, if you want to see it, you can find it in Frank NFT Vault. It's the girl with the very, very, very big eyes. I think that was my very first. So it's an image of a girl wearing a dress with uh, hair tied back, really big eyes. Cool. So, and this was uh, a one of one that you sort of purchased. Yes. I don't really even know. It can be that's an addition even. I don't know. I think it's a one of one. It was unwearable. Yeah, it's one of one. Cool. So you, you came in through the art collecting circuits early on. And, and so... Just remind me as well, what got you into NFTs was an article about digital art and different platforms. And then you, you went through foundation, down rabbit holes around there, applied, got in, and then experimented with dropping your own project with Dorkies as a developer, and then started your collection journey as well. I think I already had this piece before Dorkies, actually. Well, let's see when it was transferred to me. Uh, yeah, the thing doesn't... Uh, see, April 1st, so that was... 
that was very close uh, to when I started publishing my own work. So we go back to We Are Dorkies, uh, because that's where it started. And there was this one whale on We, we Are Dorkies, and he's called Cyborg. And at a certain moment, he came to me and he said, yeah, I have this, like, these 50 V1s in my, in my wallet. And yeah, basically, they're, they're useless because, yeah, you can't trade them. You can only trade them OTC. And, yeah, that's quite difficult, and quite dangerous. Did not lose the, the V1. He also gave a V1 away even uh, on, the, on the Dorky's Discord as a prize for somebody who did something useful. Let's call it like that. And he came to me and he said, and we, we are now in the period, I think November 21, something like that. Um, he came to me and he said, yeah, ma, let's, can we fix this and this and that? Um, and I answered him, okay, you just fucked my, my Christmas holiday because we're going to fix this uh, over the Christmas holiday. So I made the wrapper. There were like four or five. We made a Discord. He made a Discord. Uh, he actually had an NFT as an invite to the Discord. It was pretty cool. Can you just tell, tell me what time frame this was? Like, when was this? Yeah, we're like now, we're November, December 21. Okay, got it. And so we were like four or five people in the Discord. A few people got invited. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of decisions to make, like choose the background. So the, the people that were in the Discord, I think by the time we voted, we were like 20 or 25 people who voted on the color scheme. Hemba also got in in that period because it's actually the... Uh, I think it's the wife of Hemba that actually made the color palettes, uh, the several several different color palettes that we could vote on. And yeah, we launched then the wrapper on, on 17th of, of January. And yeah, that we can go later in it. We can go a lot deeper, but that gave a lot of controversy and a lot of uh, things to do. I'd love to. Maybe you can provide a bit of context as well. So you mentioned Cyborg. Admittedly, you probably haven't heard of Cyborg before, but I'm assuming he's a claimer. He was one of the original claimers, not a big claimer like Hamba. He had, he had like 50. Hamba had like 1,000 of them. You, know, you had a few of these at Wilcox. Uh, you have uh, Mr. 703, Hamba, uh, Tony Herrera. You know, these guys, they, they really claimed the hell out of this thing. Cyborg, he was also there. He claimed 50, which was uh, would probably, if I was there in 2017, I probably also would have done, you know, you, you claim some, but. Yeah, you don't you don't claim the hell out of it because you you don't know what it's going to give. Um, and so he came to me to say, yeah, can we fix it? Because yeah, they have this bug uh, that yeah, it's an interesting bug basically. Uh, so you have a punk, you have an OG punk, and I come and I buy it. And if I buy it, I get your punk, and I also get my money back. And yeah, that of course that that's that's not really good for trading. Yeah. That was in the original CryptoPunks contract that came out, and that was a bug that exploited. And then they basically airdropped everybody the V2s um, shortly thereafter within a sort of time frame. But and then basically everybody that originally claimed, so all ten thousand of them still had these V1 punks that were just sitting there, but they couldn't they couldn't trade them. So I recently had Hemba on the show, and he was talking about V1 punks as well. But one thing he did mention was that he. He said that there were actually two V1 wrappers. So there was one that was, I think, done by FUBAR? Yes, correct. There were actually three even. There was one even before FUBAR, but it never worked. I don't know. We, we looked for the guy. We couldn't find the guy. Uh, we found the code, uh, but there was something wrong with the metadata and didn't give an image, didn't give metadata and so on. So it, it really it just didn't work. 
And then we had the one of, uh, of FUBAR. And yeah, he, 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 made it, he, he made a very good rapper. Uh, definitely no rock to, towards FUBAR. But he, he, he put this red ribbon in uh, like the wrapped uh, V2 punks. They have this green ribbon on the side. He put this red uh, ribbon uh, on the side and we contacted FUBAR. We said, yeah, we, we want to change the R because we don't want that ribbon. We, we want to do something else. We want to be able to change the metadata because we want to have our own metadata model because we want people really to see they're not the same. You know, you, you, the, the idea of the V1s is not to dilute the market. Yeah? They are a different project. I, basically, they're a different version of the same project, but they are different tokens, and we want people to really see that. And, and, and Fubar, uh, he, he wasn't interested. He said, no, the, the wrapper is there. If you want to use it, use it, but I'm not going to change anything do it anymore. And yeah, we discussed it in the, in the Discord, and we said, yeah, we're just going to make a new one. And can I just ask why... In terms of uh, FUBAR's contract, what didn't it have that you felt the need to create a new wrapper? Basically, it was the metadata and the, and the image that we wanted to change. In the end, we changed a few other things too, because we also launched our own. We anticipated that OpenSea would delist us. So we immediately, uh, after the wrapper, also created our own marketplace. So we added some extra code in that wrapper to make that marketplace more easy. To, uh, to give that marketplace uh, more ways to talk to the wrapper directly. But that was optional. For us, it was really the image and the metadata that we wanted to do differently. And, and um, so the image, I think it's got that sort of, I don't know, would you call it a purple, lilac, lavender background? Lavender is what we call it, yes. Perfect. And when you talk about the metadata, like what in particular about the metadata did you have a desire to change? or distinguish between the V2s? Looking back now, I think that was probably a, not the best decision. But the, if you look at the V2s, their metadata is just attribute 1, attribute 2, attribute 3, attribute 4, etc. until attribute 7. And let's say a cigarette that can be, now it can be attribute 1, and in the next punk, it can be attribute 3, which makes it very hard because we, we knew we would be an ERC721 token, which, for instance, makes it very hard to use the filters on OpenSea because, yeah, you have to go through each attribute and see is cigarette present and click those to actually get all the cigarettes. So we made a new metadata model where you have, yeah, all the smokes, yeah, the, the pipe, the cigarette, the vape, they can't, they can't collide anyhow, so they have their own category. So you can actually start searching on OpenSea. Would it be fair to say that the current metadata in the V2s is probably a better structure for taxonomy than in the V1s, if for, for search purposes, that is? In, in those days, they, they didn't have the need for these to be that structured, of course. But I was looking at the current marketplaces at that moment that was uh, OpenSea and LooksRare. That were the popular marketplaces, a little bit rareable uh, still, uh, but they weren't able to catch on to the market. So it was really OpenSea, the big one, and then LooksRare, the next one next to it. And we wanted to go to a, a metadata model that was really suitable for these two platforms. And maybe if you can help just describe to everybody, I guess, the, the process of wrapping, what that actually is and of course. how that's sort of done. And then we can talk about the marketplace. So what, basically what you do is you take your token, the original token, you go to the original contract and you create a private sale to the wrapper, to the wrapper, wrapping contract. And then you go to the wrapping contract and you can say, 
grab this token. And the contract then will check, did you actually do the private sale to me? If, uh, if you did, it will execute that private sale. Uh, it is also always a zero ETH private sale, so there is no ETH involved. And, and that's also a good failsafe because we saw, I think a week ago, somebody accidentally burn a V2 token trying to wrap it by sending it to the zero address. In, in this case, you, you just can't do it because you have to do this private sale towards the contract. And so the, the wrapping contract becomes owner of your token and issues you a new ERC721 NFT, which is the token that you see. Yeah, if you go in my wallet, you see several uh, of these lavenders things. Yeah, those are new ERC721s that are basically just the proof that you own the underlying token. And if you ever decide to unwrap, you can just go to the contract again and you can say unwrap it and the wrapper will send the ERC721 to the zero address and the original token, it will send back to you. So basically what you do, and that's that's how I like to explain it to people, is I'm sending a painting from, from me to you. Uh, I'm not just giving that painting straight to the mailman. I put a very nice box around that painting that protects the painting from damage during transport. And that is what the wrapper is. The wrapper is just a pretty box. It has this image with the lavender color, but it's not the token. The token is the ERC20 that's inside. That is the painting. And um, talk to me a little bit about the marketplace. Um, did you build the marketplace as well, Frank? I, I built the, the contracts uh, for the marketplace. Uh, so the, the, the marketplace uh, is supported by, by two contracts, which yeah, the marketplace contract and then the marketplace helper, like we call it. And then a friend of mine did build the, the website that goes around it, which also was a, a quite retro uh, website. It was pretty cool. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's cool. I, I can imagine that point in time, um, it would have been a bit risky with OpenSea uh, and also with, the I guess, Yuga and Lava Labs probably putting out some DCMA notices. Yuga was not in the picture yet at that moment. So it was really Lava Labs. Um, so they saw that we started uh, selling and basically they started, let's call it fudding us uh, on Twitter. And that, that gave an extremely huge uh, Streisand effect because the more tweets they send out, the higher that the V1s did go. Yeah, can you um, remind us at that point in time, you know, maybe the sequence of events. So. What sort of happened and how did Lava Labs, Matt and John, sort of respond to the V1s? The first thing basically they did is they, they did send out uh, a PSA, a public, public notice. So, yeah, we, we have 1,084, but we don't like them. And yeah, the, the V2s are the official, uh, the, the official collection. And yeah, that, that just gave the V1s a boost. You know, people, yeah. You know, if, if I send that tweet from my Twitter, I have like six, 7,000 followers. Yeah, they had like 100,000 followers. So their tweet was, it has a lot more weight. And they did a few tweets like that. For us, it was a gift. What we didn't know at that moment yet is that one of the founders, I, I don't remember if it was Matt or John, was one of the two founders. He was actually secretly wrapping his personal stack in my wrapper and he was selling them off. And at that moment, they were, yeah, they were between 20 and 30 ETH. How did you know it was them? At a certain moment, one of the community members uh, came and said, guys, have a look at this wallet. 
there there is something there's something on uh, going on there and yeah we had a we had a we have some good uh, private detective uh, guys in our community that uh, that dig into it and that that indeed discovered uh, that it was one uh, one of the founders so the first 1000 serials of the with dev punks, so they weren't dumping the dev punks. There was different punks, right? Yes, they were different. But they were in their personal wallets. They also had some in their personal wallets, and it was from that stack that he did. He did wrap forty of them, and he did sell thirty nine of them. And I think that was about his his, his whole stack uh, that he had put aside. And of course, then he was exposed to doing that. And then they, they made the other tweet where they were saying, okay, we're going to give the money to the rainforest and yeah, we're sorry that we did this and, and so on and so on. And then directly after that, they DMCA'd us. And of course, yeah, that, that chain of event is, is, is so horrible because yeah, you, I'm, I'm selling you 39 points for, for 260 ETH and then I DMCA the project basically making your investment worthless. Yeah. We'll just go back to the first announcement when they came out and they said, yes, there's some V1 punks out there, but they're not the real punks. The real punks are V2. You said that tweet basically was a, a tailwind for the V1 rapper. Why do you think that is? Why did they send it? Well, I, I think yeah, their main concern, and that is still the main concern of, of, of Yuga right now, is yeah, you have a lot of people that actually did buy V2s. Let's say you did buy your V2 at what, 100K, 150K? And now suddenly there comes another project that says, yeah, but you don't have the original one. You have, you have the version two. This is the original one. And that is, of course, that is a big threat to your investment. And the V2s they have been sold on, on Sotheby's, on Christie's, with, a, with this story that they were the first... Uh, and not that they were the second. You know, there was there was never any mention like, okay, these others are still there. So they're protecting their investment and they're protecting their reputation. And I can I can fully understand that, of course. Yep. So I, I can completely appreciate that as well. But why do you think at that point in time it was a good thing for the V1 punk community? It was pure Streisand effect. The fact that they were sending these tweets about the V1s, they just had a, a much, much bigger reach. And, and people were discovering it thanks to their tweets because yeah, everybody in the community is following Larva Labs. Like at this moment, everybody in the community, except for a few haters, is following Yuga Labs. So if they send out a tweet, that reach is so immense, that is so huge. Even if the, even if the tweet is negative, the reach is so big that yeah, people make their own mind up and say, yeah, okay, maybe they don't like him. But they were first. They're, they're definitely an historical uh, project, and there are many people that actually like to have historical projects. Mm. Now, I, admittedly, at that point in time when I when that news broke, I wasn't aware of V1 punks. You know, this was like early 2022, I think, when they sort of came out. Yes, and I, that definitely drew a lot of attention to V1 punks, and I remember that a little bit of a frenzy going on at that point in time. But I mean, what's the V1 punk community like? So, and how did that sort of evolve? So I think you were there from day one in a discord with like five people with a whole bunch of claimers. How have you sort of described that community and, and what it is today? And I guess the general evolution of it. 
the community has grown, of course, and it has grown very organically. Uh, you have a few people, including me, uh, preaching the word of the V ones, call it like that. Uh, so they're getting out more and more. People are discovering them. Still today, we have seen people that said, oh, I didn't know anything about this. I just discovered it and I bought my first one today. So these people are still there. We, we see that now a lot because uh, we have now a lot of blur farming. Yeah, there and of course, yeah, that, that also creates a lot of noise. So, so new people are actually seeing this and getting these interests. And... Yeah, these people, of course, they go to the collection, they see the Discord, they come to the Discord. So the Discord is, is continuously growing and growing and growing. And yeah, like every Discord, yeah, some members are very active. Uh, some members have a, a still a very negative outspoken opinion towards the V2s. Uh, we actually have server rules about that. That That is not uh, what we want to do. Can I just ask why there is some people with that type of feeling towards the v2 collection and the community in the v2 collection like uh, yeah it'd be, just be interesting to sort of understand i just i've come across a few of them on twitter well I, I think we have them in both communities because i am in both communities i'm both in the v1 and in the v2 community I, I'm, I'm going to going to the punks brunch and so on and so on and and we see them on both sides that there is a, a small group but it's usually a very loud group <laughs> as always, that just hates the other community. And yeah, what are you going to do about them? You're going to kick them out? And yeah, we really have this rule that we say, no, we are family, we are brothers, uh, we, we don't do this. But yeah, we have this this small group that, that is still very outspoken uh, towards the V2s. But I, I think I can safely say that 80, 90% of the community actually is not going that direction. That is that is actually going the direction. No punks are punks, and uh, it doesn't really care if you have a, a five eat punk or a seventy eat punk. Uh, if you want to be punk, you're punk. It's a super fascinating topic because, you know, you're right. It it's part of punk history. You know, the blockchain doesn't lie. There is a role for V1 punks to play. I sort of do feel like there are certain individuals that are agitating. Uh, on the both sides, like in both V1s and V2s. And and I think when I first came across V1 punks, you know, I found them quite rude, abrasive, and it sort of turned me off and made me want to get combative. But it wasn't up until I think I had a conversation with, um, you know, the likes of Tony Herrera and um, Sean Bonner, you know, they were educating me about what V1 punks were. And I guess that whole sort of process Admittedly, I, I went and bought sort of a V1 as well, just because I'd like to participate in that cultural history, but also paying, you know, very well respect to, I guess, the founders and their wishes with, you know, what they would like the collection to be. But I could sort of see it on both sides. They're sort of stuck at the moment because, you know, if they do recognize V1s as part of the punk community, then, you know, there's a whole bunch of ramifications and questions that come on the back of that whereas you know fighting for legitimacy and leaving it as it, as it is might be the better outcome for them i guess in a roundabout way my question to you is what would be the ideal outcome i guess to bridge these two communities together do you think there is there is no role a real role in there for larva labs anymore uh, they stepped out of it I actually, I met the the woman that is head of strategy at yuga uh, in paris it was it was quite funny. Uh, we were there with a 
with a quite group of Belgians. I'm going to meet those guys uh, basically after this uh, podcast because we're going. We have a Belgian crypto meetup uh, today, and uh, one of the guys uh, uh, he said, "Oh, I want to introduce you to somebody." And uh, he said, "Ah, yeah," and, and she is uh, the head of strategy. And I, I looked into the group, and everybody, of course, knew who I was. And I said to the group, "What do you think? Am I going to ask it?" <laughs> Nobody said anything, and you saw these question marks in her eyes. I said, "Yeah, let's ask it." And so I asked her, "What is the strategy of you got for the V1 banks?" Of course, she didn't want to answer on that. And I asked this this question to Noah also. Uh, uh, already and Noah did answer it basically and but yeah it, it was a let's call it an evasive a- uh, answer uh, where he says yeah at this moment we don't have any plans for the V1s and probably if I was Yuga and if I was Noah I, I would have answered that too because yeah they're, they're in these between these two fires, eh? they, they have this V2 community, uh, which is a good community. They have, on the other hand, these parties like, like Sotheby's and Christie's uh, that they have to respect. And on the completely other side, we are there with this v, V1 community that for them is still some kind of a threat. And I hope that at one point they can actually see that we're not a threat, that we're just family. You know, the, the lost son coming home. In your eyes, how, how does that happen, though, Frank? From a you know, I don't know if it's a commercial, legal, or even just a public acknowledgement. Like, what would a a good outcome be for V1 punks? I, w- I would say if you go with with tweets that we would that they would say, okay, from now on the, the V1s are are welcome. That would be uh, that would be tremendous. I definitely would be. We'd be very happy for everybody who's holding it back at the moment that tweet comes out because then they, they will shoot up like a like an unguided missile. But I don't see that happening anytime short. Eh? Let's let's be uh, let's be fair about that. Yeah. Do, do you feel like if they did that, the floor prices of V1 punks would skyrocket and comparably to the V2 punks? What do you think that would be? Uh, I, I, it's hard to tell how high it would go. I, I don't have a crystal ball. When 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 Lava Labs was tweeting about it, we we did shoot up in in a matter of, of days to thirty ETH. Maybe not in terms of uh, you know nominal values, but what about in terms of percentage of V two punks? Do you think it'd be a third, fifty percent, you know, hundred fifty percent of the V two price? Like you know, if that if you that sort of tweet, the fifty percent is definitely feasible. I think. Can't tell you how high it will go, but the 50% is definitely feasible, I think. Yeah, okay, cool. No, it's just, um, and it's hard to have this conversation with V2 punks in some some instances. And I think that's why having a podcast like this, um, not obviously not to shill or anything else, but it's just really to appreciate punks, right? Because it has a really interesting provenance of story. So I think like most people that speak about V1 punks feels like everyone's just talking to their own bags. You know, you only talk to V1s if you're, if you're holding V1s. Um, oh, of course. I think that there's a really um, interesting dynamic community history behind all of this that makes us all punks, right? And so, um, you know, for me as, a, as, you know, this podcast, even though it is for primarily for V2s, and I know you have a V2 as well, and I'd like to get into that story. But, you know, Frank, I mean, you've played a historical role in the CryptoPunks story, right? Even though it's, more on the V1 side, but that's still part of that sort of story and that, uh, that, that conversation. And 
I keep saying that what accrues value to punks, whether that's V1 or V2s in the long run is attention. And it's just stories like this conversation, debate and discourse that's always going to bring you know, valuable conversations back to the collection. And for me, I just find it really fascinating. And obviously speaking to you and the people behind it as well, make it a very interesting story for me. But I, I think that is that is one of the most important factors at this moment. That is indeed that there are people are open to talk about it. I, I told you I, I was at the Punks branch in, in in Paris. There were like 100 people, and basically I only found three true haters. And those were the three people that were able to say in my face, "No, I hate them. Go away." But, <laughs> so the, the the 97 other people, I mean 96, because I was number 100 they were perfectly happy to talk about them and, and to have this basically a similar conversation to what we are having right now. So I think the communities are really growing together. I, I hope so. When I, I remember when, when we launched the wrapper, if you would put on uh, your V1 punk and you would go to the V2 Discord, that there was there was an eminent risk that you would get banned on site. <laughs> Kicked out of the V2 Discord? Yes. Well, now you you can actually you can just have your V1 punk on uh, even in the lounge in in the closed part. So there is definitely a very strong movement there, and yeah, still some people hate them. But yeah, there are people that hate apes. There are people that hate cool cats. You know, there will you will always have haters. So that's okay. Yeah, I think so. I think I think not everyone's going to be coming along for the journey, and that's okay too. I think it's a choice. But uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting story, a part of history that we can't get away from and the story needs to be told, right? So hopefully we can find a way to, uh, to, to make those bridges. Okay, so then thanks for sharing that story in V1 Punks, Frank. And um, definitely if I have any more coming up, I'd love to uh, pick your brain on it at some stage. But um, maybe if we could talk a little bit about your V2 Punk 4706. How did you then transition into buying a V2 Punk? Oh, that's, that's a completely different story again. So at a certain moment, we decided to do another project with four people, which are the day job punks. And we did, we did those during NFT London. That was quite stressful for me. And the day job punks, basically, they're a meme project. They, were not, uh, they weren't there and they are not there to make money off. So please buy a few, but you will not, they will not make you rich. I promise you already. <laughs> and their primary goal was basically, it was to support the V1s. So the, the money that was uh, was gathered with them was, was pushed back into the V1s. But at a certain moment, we said it would be cool if we could do something with a pair. So I basically, I borrowed the money to the day job banks to buy a full pair of Tony Herrera. And that was number uh, 4706. Now, of course, the day job, the day job banks, they're poor as hell. So they, they will never be able to pay me back. So I'm keeping the the V2 as a collateral. Ah, uh, nice. And so, so t- talk to me about that story with Tony Herrera then. Uh, how did you go about picking punks? How did that conversation happen? Like, And to what extent was Tony sort of involved? I, I met Tony at uh, at an event in London uh, last year somewhere. There, were, there was no talk yet about buying a, buying a pair. Because at, at the V1s, we really think that the pair is, is one of the holy grails. If you can get this pair together, so the V1 and the V2 together in one wallet. And yeah, it was one of these uh, NFT UK events. They come together like every month to have a beer, to do a boat party. They're just, they're, they're really 
cool community. I, I, I wish we had those in Belgium. Mila is a very fun woman who organizes that. It's, 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 it's really good community. And at, at that one of those drinking beers, uh, Nino Sip was there. I don't know if you know him. He's active very, very, very much in the in the NFT community. And he knew Tony and he introduced me to Tony. He, he had a, an art exposition actually somewhere in London, at Phillips Gallery. And uh, he invited me there together with a few people. And uh, Tony was also one of the people that was invited. And so, yeah, we looked at the gallery together. And that is how I basically how I met uh, Tony. And yeah, Tony was already a big fan uh, of the V1s at that moment. So afterwards, we went to a bar and had a lot of beers, talking about the V1s and the V2s and so on. And so at, at a certain moment when, when we decided, okay, we're going to get this pair, it, it's, it's actually quite difficult to get a pair because you have to find the V1 guy that is willing to sell and you have to find the V2 guy that's willing to sell and then, and then put them together. And yeah, Tony was a good option because Tony still has both. So we negotiated basically with Tony for for quite a while to get a good to get a decent price. Uh, it was an OTC deal, and we bought the the full pair of uh, of Tony. Nice. It, yeah, I think the V one V two pairs are going to be grails. Um, really, really hard to come by. I'm still trying to locate mine as well. So um, no, well done. And, and Tony's been um, great ambassador for punks in general as well. So helping people find um, yeah, definitely. Punks. Yeah, he's, just, he's a super guy. He's really a super guy. Yeah, nice. And if money wasn't an issue, Frank, what would be your dream punk? I'd probably complete my second pair. I already told you at the beginning of the talk that I'm usually rocking a 1507 as a, as a PFP. Now, I've seen that the 1507 in V2 version is for sale. But he is kind of out of reach. Okay, yeah, cowboy hat. Uh, I think the guy is listing at 169 each, something like that. Can be 166. Don't shoot me for it. But that's the range. And yeah, that's not really what I want to spend at the moment. No, gotcha. Uh, the cowboy hats are super cool. Love one of those as well. And in this sort of market at the moment, are you buying or collecting anything at the moment? Uh, anything that you that sort of catches your eye? I'm not really collecting a lot. I must admit guilty that I'm also blur farming a little bit. <laughs> like most. Like most, yeah. But that works really well in this market and can be relatively risk-free. A lot of people are also doing it on the V1s, uh, where probably the risk is a little bit higher. But uh, yeah, even even Franklin came in and uh, started a blur farming the V1s. So I'm also a little bit uh, into that. But I try not to do it on my own collection because probably as a founder that would look horrible uh, so I try I, I do sometimes sell and buy something but I, I try to stay away from it uh, so I'm usually doing it on, on other on other collections did, did buy a few scapes accidentally while doing a uh, blur farming nice from Jalil from Jalil yes indeed uh, we were actually at NFT Paris and I think it it was during the punks brunch I walked in and Jalil came to me and he said did you just buy a scape? I said, yeah, it's probably one of my bits because I'm blur farming uh, on, on YouTube. Uh, uh, that just came through. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I really like the scapes. I, I, I think it's an, an amazing idea uh, what he had there to, to, to make these. And yeah, you can copy paste your pumpkin and you really see it fits together. So it's, it's really pretty cool. Uh, I, to my big shame, I miss checks, of course. Uh, which is sad. <laughs> I wish I, I hadn't done that. Uh, so yeah, things happen. Yeah, you know, 
Totally. And um, if you look back on your, I guess, your NFT career today, do you have any wins or losses worth mentioning? Uh, wins or losses? Uh, everything I own from you guys so down so much. Uh, <laughs> other deeds, mutants, uh, we're all down so much. Uh, so those are basically quite some losses. Oh, what else do I have? I basically, everything in my wallet is a loss because I basically never, never sell anything from the thing from the things that I collect. Yeah, to call it like that. Nice, cool. And if you had to look across the CryptoPunk community, and let's let's keep it to V two punks, please. <laughs> um, who who would be your favorite punk personality? My favorite. Oh, that's a difficult one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Uh, it's a really very difficult one. Um, Probably Moxley or Tony Herrera. Those are definitely in, in my top uh, there. Grown closer to Chuli. She used to hate me. We're growing closer together. I really like her. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, but yeah, I was the guy that created the V1 since she was not really a V1 fan, to call it like that. But we're growing on each other. Uh, but yeah, top personalities, Moxley, Tony. Yeah, those two. Yeah, I think they're they're awesome. I, I did have uh, Moxley on uh, or Straybits basically, and uh, yeah, really lovely guy. And um, if you were to describe punk culture in a few words, how would you describe that? Punks do their own thing. Eh? Punks don't have a boss. Punks do their own thing. That's also why I don't think it's that important if they're now owned by Lava Labs or Yuga, maybe move on. I don't know to the next company. It's not that important for punks. Punks must do their own thing. Punks were first. Yeah, they started this whole mess. And <laughs> that's what they always, and that is what they always will be known for. Uh, that's nice. I agree with you. If you then look inside the punk community, there's a lot of capitalism in there also. And yeah, maybe it shouldn't be there, but yeah. If your token is costing 100K, 200K, yeah, you'll get that. And just a few quick questions. Don't have to go too deep on these, but how do you feel about BTC slash ordinal punks? Oh no, please don't. Uh, I hate it. Uh, I, I I did I did uh, I did mint uh, my BTC punks, so I do have four seven oh six. I did mint them, and I also have fifteen oh seven. I did mint them. Uh, I did mint two others, and I I sold them. But honestly, Adam, it, it's probably my engineering brain that takes over. And my engineering brain says, uh, yeah, but Bitcoin was not made to do this. You know, what, this, this, this has no sense what we're doing here. It's the meta of the moment and people are making money of it. And, uh, but now this, this wasn't meant to be. We can go find Satoshi and ask him, this wasn't meant to be. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I personally found it hard pricing things in Bitcoin. I think I price everything in ETH now, so um, it was a bit of a challenge for me. What about the Yuga acquisition? How did you feel about the Yuga acquisition at that point in time? Well, yeah, for us it was good, uh, basically, because I'm I'm looking now with my V1 eyes again, uh, because Yuga immediately said, but we are not going to do anything with the DMCA. We're going to drop it. Uh, so from that, and they also kept their word on that. So uh, for us as a community, uh, because we were fighting Lava Labs at that moment, we had hired lawyers, suppose Hamba told you, to, to fight the DMCA, but do you really want to go to court in something like that? Probably not. And definitely not against you guys, I think. So it was, for us, was was pretty cool. 
and they took it over and that they dropped the MCA. For the rest, of course, as a V1 community, we're, we're not expecting much of them. And I would say for the V2 community, it's, it's interesting because they they always, they, they put some money on the table each time there's an event or something like that. And what, what does a punk want more than just a cool beer and hang out with friends? Yeah, exactly. What, why do you think Yuga dropped the DMCA at that point in time? That was an interesting move, right? That was an interesting move, yes. Uh, and you should ask them, I think. But maybe they had uh, the similar advice as our, as our lawyers said. And our lawyers said, yeah, but they, they can't DMCA you on this. Uh, of course, they were talking about Lava Labs. So they said they made it. It's their own collection. And is it even even is it even copyrightable? Because there there are legal statements about that too. Is it even copyrightable? Because yeah, some even have a difference of just one pixel of uh, of only a skin tone. So can you even defend this in court? Uh, that that was uh, the legal standpoint. You mean within the V two collection, there are punks that look. Basically, exactly the same. The only difference being a skin tone variation. Yes, or a mole. It often just changes one pixel that has a different color, and for the rest, they're identical. So the, the, the question is: is is that enough for a copyright? And that that was it's an interesting question. It hasn't been resolved yet, but I'm not. I'm happy that I'm not the guy in court having to to defend that. Actually, what do you think? I, I, I personally, I, I, I think it is copyrightable. There is this this whole discussion right now about AI making art, but the generative art is, is something different, I think. The 3D glasses, they were drawn by a person. Okay, the computer accidentally put it on that and that and that punk, but every piece and every element was drawn by a person. And when, when we did We Are Dorkies, I know that that Tori and me, we went over all tokens hand by hand to look if they were perfect. Because with with this hand-drawn thing, they they could easily go wrong. And then to say, yeah, but the machine part is too big. It's 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 not uh, it's not copyrightable. I don't I don't think that one is true. So then it boils down is yeah, but there are five hundred. 76 pixels and only one pixel is different. Is it then still copyrightable? And there I'm a little bit afraid that, that it might be, the answer might be no. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a super fascinating one. I did briefly ask Kember as well, um, and he went through a fair bit of detail, but it is an interesting question in terms of what is it that we actually do own. I, I sort of feel like it's still really hard to legally enforce commercially. I don't think anybody has the desire to or has the funds to actually enforce it but so i think really it boils down to being a social contract between you know those people in the in the community that know where the provenance comes from and um finding a way to uh be bound by it right otherwise it's really hard to enforce and it varies by jurisdiction and where you live as well i mean so um yeah that, that's that's even another problem yeah because yeah banks or apes whatever they're all over the world so yeah all these things are very very complicated I'm happy to be a programmer and just do some math and don't have to worry about all that. <laughs> uh, solid life. And if you had to pass on a message to the next owner of your punk, 4706, your V2 punk, what would you like to say to them? Good question. Uh, I'll have to think about that. I would say, yeah, he's a robber. 
So oh, he has the, the face mask, he's a rubber <laughs> uh, treatment one, uh, because uh, he's now the He's now the CEO of the day job punks at the moment, uh, and the day job punks, uh, the, yeah, they're notorious in their own way. So make sure he can stay notorious. Um, Frank, this was a fun conversation. Thank you so much for your time and educating me on the history of V1 punks and the journey there. Um, super fascinating. I guess any final closing comments on your side, and you know, how can sort of people find you? Well, find me is easy. Uh, my handle on. Uh, on Twitter, it's basically the same. You're not allowed to use uh, dots on Twitter. So it's, it has become an underscore. And of course, yeah, I hang out in the Discord of V1 punks, of the V2 punks. And by the way, it's not me that called them V1 and V2. It's actually Matt and John that did that. So uh, don't blame me for that one. So I'm, I'm relatively easy to find. Find me on Twitter, find me on Discord. I'm super, super active. These things are open all, always, so I'm easy to find. And if you want in real life, I'll be in New York in two weeks. So find me at a party somewhere. Bunks brunch, uh, Mebits brunch, uh, stuff like that. Make sure you uh, get your denim jacket as well. I think Punksdow have um, put out a, uh, a call for a, a Punks denim jacket to make sure you get that done. Yes, I've, I've seen them. They made already a few uh, pre-ones for, for Noah. I think Noah had his one on in, uh, in Paris. And, and, they, and they look pretty cool. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Uh, again, Frank, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been fun. And guys, this wraps up another episode of Punkcast for the weekend. We'll be back next week with another punk. Ciao for now.